Well, President Trump is in office and we're going to find out what we're really dealing with and with the restraints of the Constitution, perhaps the panic is unmerited. To tell me if keeping calm and carrying on is the same option, I'm joined by Professor Liam Kennedy from UCD's Clinton Institute, Graeme Finley's a lecturer in the School of Politics, also at UCD, and John Isle is the Head of Communications at Good Body Stockbrokers and he's also an American. For those confused this morning, Graeme is a Canadian. <laughs> I'm not sure how that affects your analysis, Graeme. And first, we'll have a little of the man himself. At the center of this movement is a crucial conviction that a nation exists to serve its citizens. Americans want great schools for their children, safe neighborhoods for their families, and good jobs for themselves. These are just and reasonable demands of righteous people and a righteous public. But for too many of our citizens, a different reality exists. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities, rusted out factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation, an education system flush with cash, but which leaves our young and beautiful students deprived of all knowledge and the crime, and the gangs, and the drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. And that was President Donald Trump. I don't know if you can quite, for people who weren't watching it, remember the body language and the thing he does with the hands. And he was rocking before he went up, which indicated a lot of anxiety, I thought. Liam Kennedy, you um, have written an article published on The Conversation this morning and you quote Norman Mailer. Our history has moved on two rivers, one visible, the other underground. There has been the history of politics, which is concrete, factual, practical and unbelievably dull. And there is a subterranean river of untapped, ferocious, lonely and romantic desires, that concentration of ecstasy and violence, which is the dream life of the nation. Why did you feel it's appropriate to quote that today? Well, I think Mailer's a very romantic writer, but I think he's also a very astute writer. I think he was tuned into what he called the dream life of the nation. Mailer had a vision of America as moving with these great currents, mythical currents. One is um, on the surface. It's how we behave. It's the rational law and order. It's the discourse of liberal America. It's how democracy functions. But underneath it, he believed, was the raw frontier America, that which you had to disavow and repress to make the other function. Another way of looking at that is to say it's another way of talking about the tensions between liberal democracy and American nationalism, which has been there for over a couple of hundred years, really since the founding of the state. And what's happened with Trump's election is that that nationalism has exploded into the liberal order. And we are looking at that mashup right now. 
Mailer referred to John F. Kennedy as yeah. Superman. You mm-hmm. invoked the term Ubermensch. Well, there's a close relationship between Superman and Ubermensch, depending on how you're looking at it. I wasn't talking about the comic book figure, and nor was Norman. Uh, he's thinking there about a strong leader, um, but also a strong leader who's glamorous and a strong leader who has some kind of phenomenal appeal. He believed Kennedy had those, but he believed that Kennedy could put those to work for a liberal order. So his vision is one that Miller would sign up for. Um, my view is if Miller was with us, and I suppose I was trying to channel Norman a bit in writing this piece, was that he would look at Trump and say, that's all style and no substance, and that's dangerous. This is Superman as Ubermensch. Now, so how dangerous? Given that there is a constitution, there are restraints upon the office, yeah. it, surely it won't be that easy for him to do what he wants, despite, you know, the yeah, he has the easy. other branches of government with the, them. The checks and balances, we're all learning about that recently because mm. we're all desperate to believe they exist. Um, <laughs> they're there, but I think that Trump will... I think he's run rings around the American elites for the last year, and I include the media here, right? The media got it wrong with Trump. He's used social media, and especially Twitter, of course, to do this. So what he's doing is deeply disruptive of political culture, and I think he has bamboozled a lot of people in the process. Now, will that continue? I think he'll try, but... He's going to have to pull Republicans in Congress with them. And I can see a lot of tensions there about getting his way. It's going to be fun. So we'll get back to those tensions. Um, Graeme Finlay, um, we were looking back during the week at previous presidents. When This is not the first time by any means that when a president has been elected, there is an atmosphere of fear, um, genuine fear. Kind of reminds me of when Charlie Hawley became Taoiseach, actually. <laughs> um, uh, what are you reminded of? Well, they're, I mean, inaugural addresses are really um, actually very important. I mean, it's Lincoln's second inaugural, which is at least a large part of what's inscribed on the walls of the monument. So uh, I looked at a bunch of past inaugural addresses, and there are these predecessors. I think we're going to be thinking a lot about uh, Richard Nixon over the coming years. But if you look at Richard Nixon's prior inaugural addresses, they're actually very groovy, reconciliatory, open to the future of America being bright. And it's very, very positive, even though he was very strongly a law and order president who was notoriously paranoid and uh, had horrible views in, in private, at least, about about um, ethnic minorities. So uh, it was really Reagan's addresses, which, which are the model for Trump's. And of course, he took Make America Great Again, although he denies having known this, from Reagan, who was the first person to use it in, in public life. And Reagan's addresses were profoundly ideological. I mean, it was in his first inaugural address. He says, government isn't the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. And again, like Trump, he was standing in front of a whole bunch of predecessors and presidents and, and politicians who he saw as the problem. Um, I was reading about FDR. So when he took over, that was, you know, the middle of the Depression or certainly the beginning of it. And he was taking this attitude that they should view themselves as being at war on depression. And therefore, the president should have the similar powers, those that he's able to accrue when the country really is at war. And there was a feeling amongst many people that he wanted to be some kind of a dictator and it mirrored the rise of Hitler in Germany. 
um, and he wanted to assume more executive powers to himself. It turned out that was okay because he was a good person who wanted, you know, to act in the best interests of the country. Um, but it really struck me how perception and actuality can, uh, there can be a huge gap between those things. No, I mean, FDR, it was a very strong leader and, and he really came up against the limits of the Constitution. I mean, there was tremendous resistance to the whole New Deal as being unconstitutional in, in terms yeah. of an expansion of federal power. Um, it was resisted by a conservative Supreme Court and he had to threaten to pack the court and create extra Supreme Court justices to to get it through. Uh, and they said uh, the court blinked, if I recall. Um, he ran for an unprecedented third and then fourth term, I mean, which was completely, yeah. you know, so that, you know, you could reason, see if you were a Republican. And I used, I know Republicans who, who were around for that era, um, or I, I did until they sadly passed away, um, who you would see FDR as a threat to, you know, American liberty and independence. Um, and, in, and, you know, a uh, a socialist, you know, in all but name. So there is this interesting precedent. I think getting back to the question about what Trump can do, I mean, one thing he can do is a lot of damage. Uh, so he can, because Obama could barely pass any legislation, he did a lot of things by executive order. Mm. Trump is already, has already started to sign executive orders um, constraining and rolling back Obamacare uh, because um, he's, as the president, he can uh, tear up NAFTA. But he can't replace it with something. That requires approval by the Senate. Uh, he can, through a process called budget reconciliation, uh, he, can, he can basically abolish Obamacare and profoundly alter existing laws in the name of budgetary sort of uh, reconciliation. I mean, to reconcile the actual budget, which is there, with the laws as they are applied. So he can undo a lot of stuff. The question is whether he'll be able to get any positive legislation through. John Isle, so obviously the major thrust of the speech was America first. And obviously that has major implications for the rest of us, um, particularly probably on the economic front, hopefully not on a war front. Um, so you're head of communications at Good Body Stockbrokers. What what is the reaction of the business community? Well, it's been interesting to watch. I think, uh, as you recall, initially after the election, there was uh, a very short-lived panic on the financial markets that lasted a couple of hours. And then everybody reconciled themselves to what was probably coming down the line. I think one of the big surprises of the election was not only that um, Trump took the presidency, but that the Republicans will control both houses mm -hmm. of Congress. That means a straightforward Republican economic agenda is probably in the offing. And that means tax reform, tax cuts, uh, especially for corporates, uh, but also personal taxation. And uh, Trump's uh, plan for massive infrastructure spending. Both of those planks of the Republican platform um, are good for corporate earnings, essentially, which is why the markets responded as they did. So you've seen equities up at near all-time highs. Um, and the, the question is, one, how long that can last, how much of that program will actually get, get passed and implemented and when that will happen. So uh, timing and so forth is important. But then also some of Trump's other um, economic policies like trade protectionism or deregulation are a little more complicated to figure out how they're going to interact, say, with something like cutting corporate taxes and so forth. So someone who is uh, trying to make America great again economically, who also wants to constrain international trade, may run up into uh, against some problems where, for instance, as we've told our clients this week, um, 
America is just stealing growth from the rest of the world, let's say, and not increasing overall global growth. So in the short term, very good for certain um, certain equities if you're looking at industrials or materials or energy stocks or financials, especially companies with a domestic focus in the United States, it's probably going to be a very good year. Right. But isn't the deficit way bigger now than, say, it was at the time of Reagan and that therefore and the Republicans, Republicans are supposed to be against raising deficits? I think they often say that they are, but then they they just keep spending anyway. Will the Republican Party allow him to spend? Well, this is where the rubber really meets the road. So if if, as Trump is proposing, you're going to cut American corporation taxes from 35 percent to 15 percent, initially anyway, you're going to reduce the income coming into yeah. the state. But then you want to raise infrastructure spending by about $100 billion a year, which is the the other half of his major economic proposals. First, you have to convince the Republicans to spend more, but then you have to deal with the deficit. So as you point out, when Reagan came into office, as uh, we told our clients this week, um, I, I believe the deficit, uh, excuse me, the national debt was down around 30 or 35 percent. Interest rates were very high. So there were two levers that could be pulled. One, you could increase the debt, you could borrow more. But also the Federal Reserve could reduce rates to make it cheaper for companies to borrow. And you got a, an enormous boom in the 80s under Reagan. When George W. Bush came in, uh, the conditions were not quite as good, but not like now either. I think the um, national debt was around 55 or 60 percent of GDP. Uh, interest rates were were fairly low but not as low as they are now. Trump is coming into office with the national debt at more than 100% of GDP, and interest rates have never been lower, right? Then the Fed is on a tightening cycle now, so interest rates are likely to be going up. So what will happen if the government starts spending is you get inflation, right? So then you get wage pressure. The price of commodities will go up. So are you just consuming all of your growth in terms of inflation and then you get the wage inflation spiral, which is a problem that happened in the 1970s? So do you see these, I don't want to say saner elements in the Republican Party, but do you see parts of the Republican Party willing to stop his program? I have, a, I have a personal view and I have an institutional view <laughs> on that. <laughs> Give us both. Give us both. The institutional view is that the system will work, right? The system will work as intended. The Republicans will say yes to tax cuts. Uh, corporate earnings will increase as a result because less of that money is going to government. It will be recirculated in the economy in terms of new investment, um, new products and new hiring. Uh, and that the infrastructure spending will increase but won't be as let's say, off the chain, as Trump is hoping, that his campaign a promise of a trillion in spending just won't materialize because Congress will be too sensible. And let's not forget the Democrats um, still have, uh, what is it, 48 seats in the Senate. So the Senate isn't filibuster proof. So the, the Democrats have to be brought along a little bit as well. So one thing we're, we're telling people is expect Trump to start looking towards public-private partnerships. Uh, instead of just taking all the money from the, the federal budget, he'll be looking to um, get the cooperation of private enterprise in this, which, which again, could also be good if you're an investor uh, looking at, at certain, types of, certain types of investments um, that could be beneficial as well. My personal view yeah. is that um, no American institution has yet been able to constrain Donald Trump. And that makes me concerned about what the Republicans are actually prepared to do to stand in his way. If you watched Paul Ryan utterly capitulate to him at the Republican convention over last summer, if you watched uh, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio come back into the fold um, after bitterly opposing him during the primaries, 
Uh, and if you also watch, um, as as Liam pointed out, uh, the, the media is utterly incapable of dealing with this kind of uh, this kind of a politician. It's never ever existed in, in the United States before. And in fact, if if you read certain publications like the New York Review of Books, I believe carried a piece by a Russian journalist saying. Everybody has to get wise to how this really works. Let me tell you how to cover uh, an autocrat. <laughs> um, so, there, so there's a lot of catching up that has to happen in institutional America if we want to moderate Trump's program. Right. But Liam, mm. on the bright side, <laughs> um, during the cabinet confirmation hearings, it was noticeable that many of his nominees you know, very directly disagreed with some of his campaign statements. So Je- mm-hmm. Jeff Sessions, the Attorney mm-hmm. General nominee, said he's against any outright ban on immigration by Muslims. Uh, Mike Pompeo, who's to be director of the CIA, affirmed his opposition to torture and said he would refuse any Trump order to torture, adding he could not imagine Trump would give such a directive. And Rex Tillerson, um, the ExxonMobil um, tycoon, who is going to be Secretary of State, he affirmed US commitments to NATO and took a relatively hard line on Russia, both in contrast to Trump, though Tillerson irked the GOP Senator Mark Rubio by refusing to label Vladimir Putin a war criminal. So within the cabinet of his own appointing, Mm. there are people who are very clearly disagreeing with him. Do you Mm. think they'll last? No. (laughs) Right. Not if they keep disagreeing. I think they're disagreeing with him to get through the Senate hearings. So, I mean, sorry to sound that cynical, but that's what they're doing. Uh, They're on a defense game there. They've done their homework. They know what they have to say. They pick every word extremely carefully, knowing it's going to be picked back in turn. They want the green light, and then we'll see what they do after that. Um, I know that sounds a little skeptical, but I actually believe that is the case. Now, yes, it's reassuring to think they're all going to stand in his way. They're all going to speak back to him. But I don't think that's really going to happen. That doesn't mean he's necessarily going to blow the world up. I don't believe in that scenario either. Um, What I'm curious about is, is he really interested in doing anything much in that regard? Or is he going to let a lot of this rest with these people that he's chosen? I mean, he's chosen billionaires. You know, he's chosen CEOs. Um, There's um, a mode of thought that they should be given a shot at this. Uh, Maybe corporate America believes that. I'm not absolutely sure. Well, lots lots of people in Ireland are always saying things like, oh, Michael O'Leary should be running the country. That would sort things out. Well, Sarah, would you believe that? (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay. Um, Look, we're in a very strange time, and I'll give you just one anecdote amongst the millions we could all share, but this one tickled me, is that North Korea has set up a special post in the foreign ministry, and this guy does one thing, and that is monitor the tweets of President Trump. That is the world we're now living in, of Twitter diplomacy and of apprehension about everything he does with his little finger. That's what we're trying to work out right now. And it's such a chubby little thing. <laughs> Small hands. <laughs> so what is the worst case scenario in your view then? Oh, don't take me there. Um, oh, go on. Well, no, I don't. I mean, realistically, if he really does begin to present policy options that are going to be so disruptive that we get pushback, not only politically, but on the streets of America, that's where you're going, then we might really have American carnage. Because what he talked about last night was rhetorical nonsense. That America doesn't exist except in the minds of his base. And it was insulting to those presidents who were sitting behind him. He's saying, you destroyed this country. I'm now going to fix it. You know what? America's not in bad shape. It's in bad shape in the mind of Donald Trump. What kind of shape is it in? 
the economy is in reasonably good shape, I think, and, and on the up. Of course, he will claim it's on the up because he's now the president. Uh, yes, there are problems uh, um, uh, across America that you could pick out, social and civic. Um, but the idea that we are in some kind of dystopia, which is what he is presenting, is simply not true. But that vision is very powerful in the minds of his followers. Okay, now I know this is all wishful thinking and I'm just trying to make myself sleep at night. Um, Is it possible that he'll go ahead and he'll build the infrastructure and that will be good? Yes. And that maybe he just won't take much of an interest in global affairs unless Putin winds him up the wrong way, which Putin appears not to be doing. Putin appears to be trying to play up to him. So is the not so bad scenario. Yeah. If you want to go for the more positive scenario, and let's not concentrate on the apocalyptic, uh, <laughs> even though he uses that language. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, I think he will go for a quick hit on infrastructure. Uh, it makes sense. Uh, he can show some jobs very quickly in that. I think the Democrats will probably support it as well, uh, because they've been talking about it before and they can't really back away from it. So I think he'll get hits in that. He'll look for some cheap hits elsewhere. I think he might begin building a wall and get a few square feet done and point to that. Um, one of the neater takes on that was someone asked for smart thinking during the week and said, look, hold on, we have 50,000 undocumented Irish in the United States over there. A huge wall needs building over here. <laughs> Do the maths. <laughs> now, that's what I call creative thinking. Somebody else says Norman Mailer was an alpha male and total misogynist to Liam. So I think he was. But, you know, if he, if he still well, got to analyze popular culture. In a certain well. kind of sense, it took one to know one. I mean, that's exactly what I'm getting at. I oh. think he would be able to read that in, uh, in, in, in Kennedy. And I think he's able to read it in Trump. So I have no problem with that statement whatsoever. Okay. Plus, you know, yeah. it doesn't mean he's a bad writer. True. Um, and finally, I'm really amazed at how lazy the journalism is in relation to Trump. This is from Michael and County Leitrim. I haven't heard one person ask, why does Trump want to reverse Obamacare? Um, it could it be that under Obamacare, the US government is paying multiples of what it should be for very common medicines. Trump is right. Check the numbers. The drug companies are getting away with murder as regards the payments they are charging under Medicare, etc. I think he does want people to have access to health insurance and health care, but not at the cost the US government is being made pay under Obamacare. I think maybe people would argue Obamacare could be improved upon, but abolishing it before you can figure out what you're replacing it with is is the problem. John might speak about that in a little bit, um, especially in relation to Big Pharma. Graeme, you wanted to pick up on some of the themes Liam was talking about. Yes, I mean, it should be said that actually the the Obamacare thing, and especially the drug negotiations, is actually part of Trump's populist side. The Republicans have historically been against the state negotiating with Big Pharma for for lower drug prices. And it's actually a socialist view of Bernie Sanders that they should be doing so. So that's not actually true. But yes, no, the Democrats and Bernie Sanders, now that he's leading a movement within the Democrats, which um, must be pretty strange for the Democrats, you know, the Democrats um, have a choice and they can do what's good for the country. Or they can do what's good for the Democrats. And the Republicans learned long ago when it came to Hillary Clinton's health care initiative to resist everything, give them no victories at all. And uh, the Democrats could choose to follow that path. But in fact, I I think, as Liam says, they're going to like some of this stuff. They're going to like the idea of negotiating uh, with Big Pharma for for drugs. Um, They're going to like the infrastructure plan. So they're going to give in to some bills which allow that to happen. They're going to give Trump some victories. And those bills are also probably going to have things the Democrats don't like. So if they did want to resist everything, they could resist it on the basis of the things they don't like in the bill. Right. And, but and I think is- the Republicans are going to get away with it because they're going to do what they did under Reagan, under George W. Bush, and they are going to borrow and spend in, in Clinton's terms. So would the Democrats be wrong to do that? So even though it might serve America's interest in the short term, the long-term priority is to get rid of 
Trump and to defeat the Republicans and therefore um, obstructionism is the correct long-term strategy. I think if they were prudent as a political party, they would they would be right to do that. I think morally no, it, they'd when, be better off doing trying to salvage whatever is good in the Trump program. Yeah, but morally is the correct thing to do not to give him those victories and to get rid of him as soon as possible. So the longer term, higher moral priority mm-hmm. is obstructionism, no? Again, well, I mean, the Republicans probably say that to themselves sort of when they're obstructing everything Obama and, and oh, Clinton okay. and wanted to do. They, I think the, the Democrats probably because, as John says, they haven't internalized what kind of politician Donald Trump is. They're probably saying to themselves, well, he's definitely not going to get a second term. So so we don't have to fight tooth and nail to prevent him from getting any kind of victory whatsoever so that um, so that we can be assured of defeating him in 2020. And uh, again, they may be underestimating. I casually mentioned Charlie Hawhey at the beginning of the program, and I hadn't given it too much thought. But, you know, those kind of tactics can't help but remind me of Fianna Fáil versus Fine Gael. And the... The ideologies or personalities behind each of those parties with this Fine Gael thing of wanting to do the right thing versus Fianna Fáil, do whatever you have to do to get back into power. And when you get in power, do whatever you have to do to keep it. Um, do you see any parallels there? Well, there's parallels, I think, in every politician's life. I mean, I so I read Hillary Clinton's books, so you don't have to. And I don't <laughs> recommend them to you at all. However, what emerges from reading Hillary Clinton's books are that she believed that some of the things she did, which cost her friendships, at least for a while, uh, cost her, you know, all of her at then political commitments. And the same was true of Bill Clinton, like welfare reform, uh, which now Bill Clinton's desperately proud of, but at the time was forced upon him by the Republicans and was a complete selling out of mm. poor and minority families in the United States. Uh, she believed he had to sign it so that he could get reelected because only Bill Clinton could stop the Republicans. And this is true of, I think, every politician. And and so in a way, Trump is remarkable for saying it out loud and making it at the basis of his inaugural address. But they all believe that they're the only people who can do this, the only people who can save America. And, you know, while they may talk about values and vision and so forth, deep down, they think that if I'm not in there doing this, um, all sorts of bad things are going to happen. That's why I have to do whatever it takes to get in there. And I suspect that Charlie Hawley probably said that to himself late at night as well. I think Andrew Kenny might think that too. <laughs> um, John Isle, Konstantin Gurdjieff uh, wrote an article recently talking about betrayal aversion and it was about the perspective of voters when it comes to electing heroes. And it was this, we'll do anything to avoid a betrayal, you know. So if you vote for a hero, you know, if you vote for a Kennedy or you vote for a Blair or somebody like that and then you get let down, it really, really hurts. And that part of Trump's appeal was a lot of people maybe weren't going to experience that because they knew what he was. They know he's not a great guy. They know he's horrible to women and he's rude and obnoxious. But they're willing to set that aside, a bit like politicians, because maybe it'll be okay for the greater good and that it will reduce the opportunity for betrayal aversion. If they get let down, well, he was never a nice person to begin with. Do you see any um, well, insight I, there? Well, I mean, I think what the equation for happiness is um, oh, reality over expectations, right? So you just yeah. lower your expectations and whatever reality delivers you, you're probably going to be satisfied with it. I mean, that suggests that uh, the American electorate has a desperately low self-esteem. Uh, and maybe that's true. Maybe after eight years of 
substandard growth or whatever. I, I mean, I think objectively the the economy has recovered remarkably from what was a very deep recession in 2008 and 2009, but people don't live in statistics, right? So people live according to <clears throat> what they're expecting. And if for your whole life, <clears throat> excuse me, if for your whole life, the American economy has grown 4% a year and then it's growing 2% a year, it doesn't feel good, even though objectively it's fine. So I, I think that was definitely a factor um, in this election. But I, I think what people found compelling about Trump was precisely his transgressive nature, Mm. that he was giving people permission to give voice to the things that they were most ashamed of and gave them permission not to feel ashamed anymore about those things. And I'm talking specifically about racism and misogyny and all of these other cultural fault lines in in American politics that had been really repressed since the 60s. In my opinion, that was a a good form of repression. I think we all uh, probably had to learn how to live with each other in a different way. Um, And the, let's call them the cultural elites, had more or less corralled corralled those issues in a certain direction towards greater inclusivity and greater equality, not perfect by any means. But what Trump has done is he's stripped all that back and said, despite what's happening on the surface in this country, I know how you really feel about those people. And I'm going to give you permission to express it. It's very powerful, isn't it? Liam, you said that in your article too. He dares to say what should not be said, shocking the political and cultural elites, speaking to and for the real Americans in their language, giving voice to their inarticulate anger and thwarted dreams. Um, in a way, is that a fault of the double speak of mainstream politicians who, as Graham eloquently outlined, will all say whatever it takes? And we know they're all lying. I, I think it's something more, even something else here. It's, and this is what I was trying to get at with Mueller and the American aspect of this. I think John gets it absolutely right. In order to have this liberal democratic order that America's had, at least since the end of the Second World War, um, Certain things have to be repressed. That's a good word to describe it. There's ways that there's things we don't talk about. We might think them, but we don't talk about them. And so we'll make sure that our educational systems don't talk about them and so on and so forth. And and I think that a liberal democratic edifice was constructed that many Americans bought into and thought it was reality. This is reality check because all of that repressed material is coming back through Donald Trump. And it's being voiced in a way that is exciting a lot of Americans. Uh, and it is very clear there was a huge dissatisfaction. And I don't think we can simply say that's all wrong and try to sweep it all away. But whether liberal America can listen to this new America, I'm not sure. And isn't it very relevant because it's not just liberal America. This is in Europe, too, mm. you know, where there are these populist movements. Sure. So how do you give voice to people's fears and anger without it turning into something more malevolent? I don't think we yet know. Um, I think it's a management process rather than, a, rather than a, a conversation. I don't see conversations about this. I see schism and division. And I think that's true of most of the countries across Europe as well. Um, where, where is there an open conversation uh, about how to really co- work across the divide in the United States? I don't see any intellectuals speaking to that who are listened by both sides. I don't see any leaders. Um, popular culture? No, you either like this music or you like that mm. music, okay? Personally, I love country music and I'm a liberal, so that makes me kind of strange. Uh, but you see where I'm going here. It's a deep schism and it's not about political principles. It's cultural and it's psychological. And I think that's something that Miller understood. Graham, do you say any way out of it? I mean, obviously, I work in the media. I think the media contributes to a lot of these problems, especially in the polarization of conversation. Can you see a way out? 
There's a big problem in that you need a vision to articulate to to make yourself the representative of change, and Obama did that very successfully. But that vision has to be corralled, especially in the United States, and I think to a lesser extent here, um, by, I mean, this tremendously American, sophisticated way of talking about identity and race, which has become known as political correctness. And it's immensely sophisticated. It's something as a Canadian, since you bowed to me as a Canadian, I had to learn when I moved <laughs> to the United States for, for years and years and years uh, to, to speak to, you know, the, the basis. And a previous Maverick candidate, Ross Perot, completely lost the audience when he spoke to the NAACP about, except kept saying, you people, you people. And they said, you know, stop saying that. And, and he completely, you know, because he didn't realize that sort of othering them and stereotyping them the way Donald Trump has quite openly throughout his campaign. You heard it in the clip from the address last night. You people, I mean, when he says inner cities, he means African-Americans. And he thinks they all live in the inner cities and they're all in terrible shape. And, you know, African-Americans have a a very interesting, diverse set of communities. There's lots of middle class African-Americans, never have been more. So with, you know, that, as, as John said, this political correctness or this way of talking, a sophisticated thing which acknowledges the role of identities in American politics, which have an outsized role compared to Europe, Mm. uh, because there's no class talk. There's only identity talk. Um, It's going to be really hard to put the genie back in the bottle that Trump has unleashed when he now starts talking about white identity politics. And and white identity, even class politics, where so, you know, know, you're not just working class or you're not just working in the Rust Belt. You're a white and and it's those people abroad or in the east and west coasts who've taken your livelihoods. Um, Liam, I, yeah, I, I think that's a great point, and I think it's it's something that has been there but is now out in the open, and that's that's the point about repression here. White folks were generally just seen as Americans; now they've been seen as white folks. That's identity politics has shifted to that point, and when you get to that point, it's different, and it's different in part because they're starting to feel like a minority. They they read all of these predictions that you know there's going to be more Hispanics coming to the point where by 2050 is it or something like that, it's going to be a majority non-white nation. So they're identifying as white, and once they start to identify as white, I think American nationalism finds a new voice. Do you lay the blame for any of that at the door of? liberals, which I know has become a pejorative term and and sometimes, um, who by emphasising identity politics, and fine, I get it that it was the conservative forces who made gender matter, who made race matter, that is where it started, Mm -hmm. but that by really um, nurturing it, that that opened the door for a kind of white identity politics. I think it does in part. In fact, you can go back again to the late 60s and see the stirrings of that. There was something of a kind of a white identity movement in the late 1960s and 70s. We didn't call it that. We called it white revivalism or ethnic revivalism. So you had the Irish-Americans suddenly beginning to think about themselves as an ethnic group, the Jewish-American, the Italian-Americans. This is the period of The Godfather and all those awful gangster movies. And what those gangster movies are essentially about is saying, hey, this is the history we had in the inner city. We're now out in the suburbs and we've got no identity, but we can claim to be ethnic. It's the story of success. And of course, the Irish-American narrative is the success story. But they were doing all that hard identification and symbolic identification in the early 70s as a backlash against the civil rights movement. That's my point. It was white identity showing we're different too. 
and speaking to it. So that's where it starts, and then we come all the way through to the present day. But to answer your question, yes, I think liberals have a great deal to answer for. I think they have been complacent about identity politics. Um, I think that they have caused a great deal of problems by not thinking through the logic of these kinds of positions. I think that their idea of identity politics is tied up with uh, what sometimes is called wounded attachment, resentment. You know, this, this is resentment as identity politics. Um, and now they are deeply confused because it looks like if they haven't lost the war, they've lost a very big battle. John, want to touch on a couple of more things before we wrap up. Let's talk about elites first. We've been harking back to past presidents and Andrew Jackson uh, was a hugely popular president because he said he was going to kick the elites out of Washington and uh, open up the government to the people. And he literally opened the White House to the people and it was mobbed (laughs) and they wrecked the place and apparently could only be got out of it um, on inauguration day when they moved the bars out onto the garden to lure out the mobs. Um, But this anti-elite sentiment, again, is prevalent throughout Europe as well as America. Um, have the elites only themselves to blame? I think there's a strange cognitive dissonance going on here in in America. I mean, given who's who's actually in the White House, if we take Donald Trump at his word, he's a he's a billionaire. He's a yeah. massive developer with gaudy skyscrapers in major cities all over the world. Um, if you take a look at Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue, it doesn't exactly scream humility, let's say, um, (laughs) compared to Abraham Lincoln's log cabin, for instance. Um, And he's populating his cabinet with ex-Goldman bankers like every other president does. Um, Rex Tillerson is an oil chief executive. These are people who are part of the elite. And if they're not from the corporate elite, they're from the policy elite. You know, the people who migrate among the think tanks in in Washington. He's He's not exactly pulling people out of the heartland and saying... I'm going to give you control of agricultural policy, Mr. Iowa Farmer. It's not like that at all. So this is a sort of a confidence trick going on that Donald Trump is somehow uh, handing real power back to the people. I don't buy that for a second. And, you know, elites are elite for a reason. You know, I couldn't run an oil company. It doesn't matter what I think about the price of oil or what my opinions are about Exxon. And yet there is that sense um, throughout the Western world that the ordinary people have been left behind and you've got the EU Commission and NATO and... That people feel remote from decision-making. And I I think that's probably very valid. And and if we had... If Hillary Clinton had been elected, I think we'd be hearing that critique coming from the left, right? So that's Mm -hmm. important to acknowledge. Um, And it's something across the political spectrum that that I think has has been has been an issue, and the financial crisis really brought it to the fore in Europe. I mean, think about how we felt here when the IMF or the Troika was really calling the shots. They weren't accountable to anybody on the ground. We couldn't vote them out. We had just sort of signed over the reins of the of the country. We'd get these quarterly visits from um, more or less anonymous men in 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 gray suits with briefcases would show up uh, in in uh, <laughs> in um, in Dublin and and sort of tell us what we had to do for the next three months. Until they, until they came along. Uh, you've seen the same in Greece and Spain, Portugal, Italy, all the countries that have had crises have faced something similar. But elites more broadly, I'm completely unmoved by that, that argument, to, to be honest. I, I, they're, it's not like people who are in charge got there completely by accident or simply because they inherited it. And in some case, that's a factor. But everybody still gets to vote. And as we've seen with Donald Trump, the elites didn't really win the day. Mm. Graham, God. Now, I always think it's interesting. We're supposed to be this Catholic repressed country and there's no politician would stand up and say, I believe in God and Jesus Christ is my saviour. He would be mocked out of it. And yet it is obligatory 
in American politics to reference God, as Donald Trump did several times yesterday in his speech. What impact does that have on the conduct of politics? Is it positive at all? I think the rhetorically, it's, as you say, required. And I think because it's omnipresent, in a way, it's... It, it, you don't notice it or, or it doesn't really do anything, I think, realistically. Um, I mean, having gone through a bunch of inaugural addresses, they all make references to God. God is a tremendously important part of, of, of the rhetoric of the United States uh, and particularly Why? a Protestant Why? God, right? Um, so, um, I mean, so part of the difference between Ireland and, and, and the U.S. is that American rhetoric is based on American Protestantism. And, I mean, Lincoln's second inaugural, which is a remarkable speech from was a remarkable it, was, order. Was it the better angels of our nature? It was, it was, well, it's about the war. It's very, very grim. It's about how we were forced to come to this war and, and war came. Right. Um, and so it's rife with biblical allusions. I mean, Lincoln thought in terms of biblical prose. The King James Bible animates his spare uh, rhetoric. But so the, the rhetoric is, is required, but that's because the U.S. conceives of itself in a messianic sort of timeline, which, you know, terminates in the rapture <laughs> and uh, and has a unique city on the hill, is the phrase, right, mm-hmm. role in, in, the, in world politics. And that so, came from the Massachusetts Bay Colony and mm-hmm. the theocracy of the Puritanism and John Winthrop, which to me is the real ideological founding of the United States of America, not the later Jeffersonian movement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you draw that line well, from I think there? Be- because so, so the way it's operative, I think, is that it, it it's the vision. It's inseparable from the vision of what it is to be an American. And and so when America falls short of, of this almost impossible vision of itself, you can use it in, in a time where people are hurting quite effectively, as Donald Trump has. I think in terms of an actual Christian commitment, the, uh, the religious right on the United States, the st- part of the story is their capture of the Republican Party. Uh, quite remarkably, if you look at the actual religious views and social views of the Republican platform, of Mike Pence, of Paul Ryan, these are hardcore social conservatives coming from an evangelical side. Um, their views have captured the ideology of the Republican Party. It's very, very bad for reproductive rights at state level and across the country. Um, but on the other hand, they aren't operative. It does, has no social message whatsoever. It has no idea of looking after the poor or the excluded or the, you know, the people in prison. It's, they are threats. And this ideological movement um, allows people to be both Tea Partiers, like Paul Ryan, like everybody who ran for the Republican office uh, as a presidential candidate, with a couple exceptions. Uh, to be a tea partier and call themselves a fundamentalist Christian. Mm, and religion is part of that identity politics, um, Liam. And I'm reminded of an Ecclesiastes line since we're talking about Lincoln and the Bible. There is no cure for the proud man's malady. Yeah. Uh, well, I was watching Donald Trump last night and I was thinking, how did that camel get through the eye of a needle? It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a similar point. Um, I think exactly uh, what we've heard, this idea of a messianic vision is that, you know, it's, it, it's, it's another of those great streams coming through American history, myth and culture. All American leading politicians have to pay lip service to it. So those rhetorical moments like an inauguration or whatever, you, you, you hear it, you see it. If you go back and look through the speeches again and again, the city on the hill and so on, it's, it's, it's all there. It's sometimes referred to as American exceptionalism, yes, yes. Um, you know, which gets a bad name. But, you know, it's, it's done some good things along the way. What has it done? Sorry well, to divert it's, you. It's, it's given, I think, a sense of purpose and a sense of vigor to Americans to take a lead in the world at a time that was good for the world. Let's not forget that. That's very important indeed. And I think that that desire to do good is still there. Unfortunately, that desire can also lead you into 
uh, the kind of forays and adventurism that America has also carried out. And George Bush would be a very good example of this, preaching American exceptionalism and, and wrecking the Middle East in the process. Let me just add to that. The, the speech we heard last night is what you might call a Jeremiah, and that goes all the way back to what you were talking about. The, and this, this idea of the Jeremiah runs strongly through. And the idea of the Jeremiah is those folks who stand up and give a speech that will bring America back to itself, back to its origins. And in a sense, that's what he was doing last night. There's a strong tradition of that. He referenced the Americans as a righteous people. That's a great term. But, you know, put the language together. I know I'm an academic, but I join up some dots here. Righteous, the people, blood, loyalty. That language sounds familiar to me and I don't like it. Uh, John, are you one of the righteous people? (laughs) (laughs) Deeply, deeply flawed, (laughs) Sarah. Um, I I, I share Liam's misgivings about that kind of blood and soil rhetoric. Um, Like, I'll go there if you won't, Liam. Uh, It was a a Hitlerian speech. It really was. Um, And, like, the echoes couldn't have been um, hidden to the people in the, in the Trump camp. They had to know what uh, th- this language was conjuring up in, in the minds of people and how deeply uneasy at least half of America must feel after, after hearing that. Like we were talking uh, before we came on air about how it was pitched perfectly at Trump supporters, but it wasn't pitched perfectly at the entire nation, which is what an inaugural address is supposed to do. So it was a deeply divisive uh, speech that I found very, very unsettling, notwithstanding, you know, the nice things that might happen for our clients if the stock market performs well this year. Um, there are longer term concerns. And uh, one of the things we, we have been telling our clients is that Republican presidents are generally good for the economy until they're really bad for the economy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I have to say, I think one, if I'm going to find some positive Finally. side to this rhetoric, <laughs> yes, Trump's isolationism means that he could only talk about America being an example rather than spreading actively American values and democracy to the rest of the world, which is how the U.S. understands democracy and human rights. So his isolationism, if you want a silver lining, is means that he's unlikely to start, as Liam said, a war of choice in the Middle East, which mm. costs the U.S. trillions and thousands of lives, and that he'll perhaps you know not mess up other countries quite as much as uh, past presidents. That's a funny something I had been hoping for, too, but it is really all about hope and not that kind of positive hope of Obama. It's fearful hoping. Liam Kennedy, Graeme Finley, John Arne, many thanks and thank you for listening.